exercise the function of the head of government of the Republic of Uganda. So help me God. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the coup that brought the former president of Uganda, Idi Amin, to power. It was in fact the 25th of January 1971. The current president of Uganda has been in power for an astonishing 35 years and he has just extended his mandate to another five years. However, Idi Amin remains a controversial figure in the history of Uganda and indeed numerous documentaries and four Hollywood blockbusters have been all about his life and legacy. He remains the most popular Ugandan globally. I have been honored by the highest order of the conqueror of the British imperialism in Uganda. I spoke to a historian of East Africa at the University of Michigan, Derek Peterson. So the first exhibition we've done here in Kampala and in other parts of Uganda is largely focused on Amin. He's probably, I would imagine, before digital photography, he was Africa's most photographed president. And the curator of ethnography and history at Uganda Museum, Mr. Abeti Nelson. The whole of that region was victimized in post-Idi Amin, not giving moment for people to remember the experiences of violence that happened during Idi Amin's time. They both co-curated the popular exhibition, The Unseen Archives of Idi Amin. My name is Eric Minimgaj. I spoke to both Derek and Abiti at the Uganda Museum just before the global lockdown. The exhibition came about because we had the good fortune as researchers to come across a whole collection of photographs stored by the Uganda Broadcasting Corporation in their archives. Uh, that was in 2015. The archivists at UBC, my colleague uh, Richard Vokes, and uh, the managing director opened up this cabinet and found in the archive a whole collection of negatives, 20, 20 30,000 of them, made by Uganda's photographers, government, government photographers in the 1970s, and then stored and largely unprinted. That is, the negatives were made when the pictures were taken, uh, they were stored away, but they weren't printed or published, the vast majority of them, that is. So we started a project in 2017 with funding from the University of Michigan to digitize all these pictures. Over time, other people brought in negatives, to add to the collection, we ended up with a collection of 70,000 negatives, medium format negatives, uh, made by the Ministry of Information in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. And once that we began that digitization project, we realized that actually it was really quite an important collection. There's no other photographic archive like this in Africa that offers such insights into the inner workings of an African government. And so. We decided, after some time, that it made sense to put some of these photos before the public, focusing on Idi Amin in the first instance because Idi Amin had so many pictures taken of him. 50,000 out of the 70,000 photos were made in the 1970s. So the first exhibition we've done here 
in Kampala and in other parts of Uganda is largely focused on Amin because of the number of pictures that we have in this archive that are from the 70s. He's probably, I would imagine, before digital photography, he was Africa's most photographed president. Well, that's interesting. And um, so you're moving the uh, exhibitions around Uganda. You've been uh, at the National Museum, the Uganda Museum. Uh, how, how was the, re, uh, the reception of the exhibition? Did you find any interesting uh, views from the public? We had, um, I would say, we had a good reception, certainly. Uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people came to visit the exhibition here in Kampala. It was on show from May. 2019 through to January 2020. Uh, we had visitors, we let, you know, many of the visitors were school kids or tourists, um, but we had lots of Ugandan citizens who came through with strong opinions about the exhibition, whether positive or negative. One gentleman came through and accused us of trying to rehabilitate a tyrant. Why would you spend your money and time doing this? He was very vociferous. Other people came through, recognized relatives and friends, and read the exhibition as something like a personal photo album, looking for friends and, and relatives who they recognized. And other people came through, uh, and you know, particularly folks who remember the 1970s positively, came through and congratulated us for lifting up this picture of President Amin. We had all kinds of different receptions. Some people thought that we were too, too uh, dismissive of Idi Amin's accomplishments as president of Uganda. Other people thought we were too complimentary of him. So, you know, the division of opinion itself is interesting. Uh, it's not that Ugandans have one single view about the 1970s. There's lots of different opinions. Myself, I was born in the 1970s, and um, I'm, I'm interested in Idi Amin. But I got interested in Idi Amin after moving from one region of Uganda to another. And there was also a stage of growing up on how you hear Idi Amin being talked about. And um, so from when you're a child up to when you go to secondary school and how history books decide to write them. And when you go in, say, for example, when I reached in university in London, uh, the narratives keeps changing. Uh, from a childhood is just seen as an innocent buffoon or sometimes a very funny character who played around and carried his children with him. Yeah. Um, what I want to find out from exhibition, did you find any narratives changing within areas? Because I know that you're exhibiting in Arua. Uh, did you find any uh, change of narratives of reception from Kampala to Arua? It's been exhibited now in Kampala. It's also on show in Soroti. Uh, visitors can go to the Soroti Museum and see it there. Uh, it's there permanently. And then we had a temporary show in, Igong, in, uh, in Arua at the Arua Social Center. We have one coming up in June uh, at the Igongo Cultural Center in Barara. Yeah. Look, I would say that different regional um, museums, we've had different reactions to the exhibition. So in Arua, the reaction was overwhelmingly positive. People who were in Idi Amin's army came and visited the exhibition. His relatives came through. Uh, the man who was his butler visited as well. Um, uh, the Veterans Association sent representatives who were very keen to talk to us.
There, the memory of the 1970s is largely one of, uh, you know, it's a positive story about Amin as the sort of son of the soil who rose to become president of Uganda. Um, largely, Ugandans in West Nile remember Amin as a positive figure in Uganda's history and are keen to emphasize his accomplishments in government, of which there are some considerable ones. Um, so the exhibition in Adua, we got lots of people who remembered President Amin very fondly, who had stories to tell about things, their own personal relationship with him or with uh, the institutions that he led. Um, uh, and it, it evoked for many people nostalgia, uh, a kind of reminiscing about fond memories of things that happened in the past that they wanted to talk about. People in Arua spent a lot of time looking at the pictures. There was a real careful attention paid to these images. Mm. It wasn't just people walking around quickly from one place to another trying to make as much progress as possible. People spent a lot of time and a lot of attention looking at those pictures. And for me, it was a rewarding exhibition in Arua because of the value that people attached to it. It was not just a museum exhibition. For many people, it was the first time that they'd had any institution in Uganda honor a president who they regarded as one of their, their own, as a native son. Um, and I think for the museum here in Kampala and for the UBC and other partner institutions, being seen to contribute to the historical memory of this important figure is, for people in the North, it's a really valuable public service. You particularly spoke to his son, Jaffa. Um, what's, his, what's his memory about his father? I mean, he's seen somewhere as a, a dictator, and some people see him as someone who led Uganda to be independent. Clearly, uh, Jafar Amin's memories of his father are positive, positive, as they would be for most people, yeah. of course. He sees his father as a lovable, charismatic, inspirational person, which yeah. he was for some people, in yeah. fact. Um, so Jafar's interaction with uh, Jafar's tour in the exhibition, he's seen the exhibition many times. He came to join us here in Kampala, uh, and he's very welcome when he comes. He, he has lots of stories and lots of memories about the events in those pictures that no one else besides other members of his family possess. Um, so, I mean, I would say that, that Jafar Amin's memories of his father represent a certain sort of slice of experience about the 1970s. He, many of the pictures show himself and his immediate relatives. Yeah. That is, photographers in the 1970s had access to Idi Amin's family. Many of the pictures we showed in Arua and here in Kampala were of the family. And so for, for Jafar, as for other of his relatives, it becomes something like a family photo album. Mm -hmm. They lost a lot after 1979. They lost their photo albums. They lost many of the things that they can use to remember their childhood. So these pictures are for them uh, you know, a welcome opportunity to reminisce about the man that they loved. also have interesting views from the curator of ethnography and history at Uganda Museum. My name is Abiti Nelson. Yeah, I work here at Uganda Museum and I'm a, a curator for ethnography and history. Yeah, uh, well, the exhibition uh, in regards to 
the one in Arua and in Kampala and in Soroti is an experience for me who works in the museum and uh, getting materials that people interact with. And uh, you see, those images, some people do not see them as a paper. They see life. They see life of both those who have died and those who have lived. So it has emotional effect. And one of the critical challenge for me who was a curator was how to deal with those emotional moments. There were some painful moments and some moments of joys. And so uh, in regard to that, so it's, it's the significance of the museum to ensure that conversations happen to people's life. And uh, when it comes to Idi Amin, uh, the, the images true reflect his joyous moments during his governance. But indirectly, there were some bad moments during his government. And a lot of people lost lives, and a lot of people were kidnapped, and a lot of people could not be seen, and their graves. And when it comes to Arua, uh, the, 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 the issue there is Arua has two elements. A lot of people served under his government. We can't deny that. But a lot of people suffered during his government. Families were killed, kidnapped, and disappeared. But the whole of that region was victimized in post Idi Amin not giving moment for people to remember the experiences of violence that happened during Idi Amin's time. So that traumas have been added up to present. And so this moment of the exhibition was like open up possibilities for people to start talking and how they can start to reconcile. After his overthrow, the, the family was enjoying his eight years but after the end of his regime, some few got privileges to survive, to live well. But I thank God the, the government is, <laughs> is, is, is good for them, all of them. No one is following them. No one has ever been aggressive against them. Majority of them are in the country. And they may not have wealth status, but some of the family members, maybe, to me, they are looking for a platform, maybe they want to do, uh, f to appeal for forgiveness, and they are not finding somebody who is doing this exhibition, was like kind of a point for them to kind of talk their heart, and uh, what they feel about their time, and what they feel they would like to tell people. Okay, I think uh, what, what, if I can understand that this exhibition was kind of uh, a moment where it brought truth and reconciliation, kind of, it brings back the memories, right? And then people start talking about their experience. His history is there. And uh, for example, when you're exhibiting, I want to find out if you uh, encountered any experience, a conversation from someone of an Asian origin, Ugandan Asian origin. Uh, how do they view the exhibition themselves? Was there any moment you met someone like that?
When we opened the exhibition here in Kampala at the Uganda Museum, we organized a panel. Uh, it was on the 22nd of, uh, of May um, last year, 2019, where we invited people who suffered in the 1970s to speak. Um, one of the members of that panel, one of the people who took part in that panel was a Ugandan Asian who had stayed after August 1972 remained in Uganda for some years thereafter and left only later on in the mid-70s. Mm. So he was part of the panel at our invitation largely because we wanted to remind Ugandans that Asians also suffered in those years. Yeah. Um, it wasn't only Ugandan, black Ugandans, but Asian Ugandans as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that for both Nelson Abiti and I, um, that discussion at the museum was a kind of a, a um, successful one, but also a difficult one. Yeah. The experience of Ugandans more generally in the 1970s who, who suffered was one of death and tyranny and loss and violence, torture. Yeah. The Asians, as they were expelled, were expelled. They lost their property. They lost their livelihoods. They had to leave the country. But there wasn't a, a sort of institutionalized violence against them in their way that there was against other Ugandans later in the 1970s. So the panel we organized here at the museum was uneven. We had some people talking about their, the loss of their loved ones and about what it was like to grow up without a father with great emotion and clarity and conviction. And then on the other hand, we had this gentleman who was speaking on behalf of the Asian community whose own experience of the 1970s was generally one of enrichment. He had stayed and had gotten rich as a result of his uh, opportunities that he opened up. And you know, his own experience is not the only experience of Asians here in Uganda in, Uganda in the 70s, but for, for us, the unevenness of that panel as we had it, um, you know, represents the unevenness of the experience of Ugandans more generally in the 1970s. Some people prospered and some people lost a lot in those years and the ways in which this exhibition has brought different kinds of memories to the surface as Nelson was saying is a reflection of the unevenness of historical experience itself. That's an interesting one and, and I, I know that one during the exhibition you met uh, some of the soldiers of Idi Amin, and um, Northern Uganda literally got peace after, even after Idi Amin's uh, down, uh, downfall in 1979. Uh, peace came back in 2006, finally. Um, those soldiers, uh, what, what did they have, uh, you know, um, attachment to Idi Amin as their leader? Some of them had worked in the first government of Obote and then they continued in the, in the Idi Amin and they had more experience even when Amin was in Obote's government. They already had an idea of who he was, how the coup was taking place. They, they had knowledge of his work system and so they enjoyed his, his regime and some of them got rapid promotions. I think they had the privileges but some felt betrayed that they had organized national army, but Idi Amin had some characters of his army officers who were particularly, they keep mentioning their names, Abdallah Nasur, yeah. 
mali ya mungu, nadonoka, around four people, ya minawa, manua, minawa, who were radical, and who were doing operations of any kind, and they also mentioned about State Research Bureau, which was notorious. Where is it now? Is it Nakasero? Including themselves, they will be victims of that circumstance. To be in, once you're taken there, you don't know your future. So I think some of them maybe, we had a few of high ranking, some of them have died, but majority were of low rank, and maybe they were only staying in barracks and enjoying themselves. So they did not take responsibility of accepting some of the instances, uh, especially of killings, violence, and uh, smuggling. They were denying their involvement, but you can't, of course, uh, pinpoint somebody and accuse somebody. But they were bringing out these conversations and showing exactly who operated in this. So it, they knew what was happening during it. I mean, it was true, something was wrong. I think, I think it's, I was also struck by how yeah. many of them told yeah. stories about their own endangerment in those yeah. years. Yeah. Like it, we often think about the 1970s as kind of the high tide for Uganda's army, that its power, many of the big men in the army got access to Asian businesses, uh, recruitment expanded, there was new barracks, new regiments, new equipment. But in fact, many of these guys, when we talked to them at Arua, we interviewed quite a number of them, their stories were stories about their own feeling of being endangered by yeah. other units within government, particularly yeah. by the SRB. Yeah. One guy who I talked to at length, a former prison warder, himself a powerful person in some sense within government, was victimized by SRB. He told a story about how his commanding officer was picked by these guys in sneakers and a Peugeot who came, pulled up as they were playing volleyball, carried away their captain, stuffed him in the trunk, and the guy was never seen again. You know, he himself told about how he was picked up by Amin's secret police, uh, kept in a shed, uh, hit on the head with a hammer. His mark is still there on his skull. He was about to be executed, and then his commanding officer appeared and managed to secure his release. You know, it, so it's worth saying that the 1970s, for ordinary people, it was very, a very, very violent time, but also even the people who were perpetrating the violence themselves were often victimized. You said how many times was Idi Amin uh, photographed? There are 50,000 negatives in the UBC archive from the 1970s. So he literally know how, knew how to use media very well. Any particular ways on how he charmed, um, uh, anything from the, the, the images you have, how he charmed uh, the, the public? Uh, especially when it comes to events of celebrations, he would really want to show that the event is there in with the public to portray how people love him in the government. Mm. So that was his media propaganda he really wanted to use. And I don't know why he was not asking UBC or the photographers to print out and circulate those images at that time. But he knew whatever he was doing was for good of his government. So mobilizing people, 
performing, dancing with them, and making sure that the photographers capture those images. I think all those events, sports, cultural events was key. Even swimming, you know, everything, even his, almost his private life, he wanted images to be there. So what is interesting, in, uh, I've been following Idi Amin and uh, from research and from speaking to people, I actually found out that uh, narratives change. Uh, the, how people view Idi Amin, uh, more especially if I pick one area um, I, 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 in the lecture room, oh, Idi Amin was forced to do things that he did, that he actually loved Uganda that he's victimized not because of what he did to Ugandans, but what he did not do for the British. And you, what you tend to find that um, when people reach a certain level of education, they start sympathizing with some of his uh, ideologies. Mm. You know, did you find that in some of the um, people you spoke to on the exhibition? Look, I, my sense is that Idi Amin today lives on in political discourse here yeah. in Uganda in a way that is increasingly distant from the experience of the 1970s. Yeah. So he's being rehabilitated as a tourist draw by the Uganda Tourism Board, which yeah. wants to create an Idi Amin tourist trail to attract tourists. Uh, critics of government uh, look upon him as a source of inspiration, mm -hmm. as a way of criticizing the ruling party today, yeah. look how good he did in comparison with what how things are now. Um, and the family itself is interested in rehabilitating him too. Um, it's worth saying in his own time, in the 1970s, opinion about Amin internationally was very divided too. African Americans in my country right up through the 19, later 1970s looked at Idi Amin as a champion for a kind of global black political activism. That is, uh, right through the 70s, people like Miriam Makeba, Stokely Carmichael, Roy Ennis from the Congress of Racial Equality, Louis Farrakhan and others came to Uganda, got citizenship from Idi Amin, as was the case for many of the people I just mentioned. Uh, people were volunteering to come here to Uganda to serve on behalf of uh, the Uganda government in this effort to renovate the Ugandan economy and to lift up black business at the expense of Asians and others uh, who Amin described as neo-imperialists. It's worth saying, so the Amin government was inspiring for many people in its own time. Yeah. Today, when intellectuals look at Amin and say, look at the, you know, how in, I mean, in many ways they're playing out a political project that Amin himself tried to advance, this yeah. rhetoric of himself as a champion of the black anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist project. Uh, in its own time, this is a very powerful idea and it continues to be par powerful today for many people. Yeah. I see he was uh, um, talking about what he did for Uganda. I see that uh, he left the, you know, a fleet is displayed here in the museum of uh, his Rolls Royce and uh, some Mercedes-Benz. Uh, I mean, is that, is it because Idi Amin talked about doing things and do it, or was it just rhetoric? Because a lot of people that I speak to, they kind of point out uh, he did this. In London, they said he bought the Uganda, Uganda house where the embassy is in. And, um, he also built the, the Uganda building at the United Nations in New York that was opened yeah. uh, 
Uh, look, I mean, there's plenty of ways in which you can say that it means government accomplished things for Uganda. It wasn't just a government of terror, it was also a government of action. And, you know, uh, lots of public works projects were launched in those years. Some of them have survived, like the buildings we're talking about here. Um, you know, uh, I mean, built up a Uganda Air Force, uh, you know, recruited paratroopers. There was a Uganda Navy. Um, <laughs> a Marine Corps, all these things, which reflected the ambition of his government. I mean, it's worth saying that he didn't see himself as the president of a small, remote, provincial, tiny little country. He saw himself as a global actor whose role it was to bring Uganda onto the front lines of the war against imperialism, apartheid, Zionism, racism, and near imperialism. So for him, you know, the idea that Uganda should bend the knee to the donors and should always accept whatever the donors say, he, that would have been foreign to Amin wanted to dictate the terms of the conversation with international powers. And that's partly why today he's remembered with some favor. He was, I mean, I actually have sympathy for this idea that, you know, why should it be Britain and America that tell the rest of the world how to, how to run their governments? It, uh, Amin's point, which is a point that's, that's a fair point, is that, you know, the world was multi-centered, uh, that the international order of his time was biased against people in the global north, and his interest was in making Uganda the central place in global politics. He wanted the UN headquarters here, he wanted the Commonwealth headquarters here, he was secretary, he was the president of the OAU. 1975, there was a big conference here to celebrate his own politics. I mean, it was an inspiring time. Yeah, about his car. <laughs> uh, I hear that it's going to be given to the Buganda Kingdom uh, as a curator here at the museum. Um, is this going to happen or you will uh, lobby to resist that? No, I think to make it clear, those were all presidential cars bought by state funds yeah. for use during of the presidents during their period of governance. And all these presidents from the colonial time, the last colonial period, and we have all these cars. And uh, the truth is Bugana had a federal status granted by the colonial government, and uh, we, we are aware that uh, Kawaka Mutisa too might have driven the car yeah. when he was the president of the country and he had his personal cars. So the difference is these cars were in, at, at the Minister of Works and the Minister of Works was donating them to the museum as a political history to represent the history of the country, recognizing this museum as a national. To me, as a, as a working for uni united country, mm. I do not agree in that context of Buganda wanting a separate mm. thing mm. for the country, because all these were state-fund purchased vehicles mm. by government, by different presidents used, even the one of Idi Amin. Those which were bought privately of Idi Amin, it's not here.
Lastly, do you think that this exhibition was, was born out of good deeds of Idi Amin or his controversy or his dictatorship? Uh, I think two, two things. One is the public are demanding for national history uh, of this country and wherever they come, and this museum being a public space with variety of different interests of the public, their particular interest, part of it is to know the history of the country and especially mm -hmm. they ask for Idi Amin. And uh, we have did not got materials to show about Idi Amin. And when UBC uh, was able to reveal that they had this, I remember jumping with him to go to UBC and we looked through, we say, we want this picture, we want this picture, we want this picture to appear here at the museum. Let's see the reaction of the public we have been asking. And I think we got a good comment. In addition, put, people brought for us some materials, especially images, and they asked us if, because we told them we're not doing the perfect exhibition, this is not complete, there might be some more materials that can reveal the facts. So people brought for us some more materials, which we hope will have, we are planning to have a complete national history. Thank you, Derek Peterson, Abiti Nelson, and the team behind the Unseen Archives of Idi Amin. And thank you for listening. This is Musomi Podcast, myself, Eric Minimugash, the executive producer and the host. The music was by Nana Kabwema, Patrick Patricus, Jesse Galga, Kevin McLeod, and the many vendors. My Twitter handle is at E underscore Mugaj. Thank you again for listening.